No mai haere mai, my name is Jeremy and this is the Maxim Institute podcast. Of all the policy areas of government, it seems like education is the one the average New Zealander feels most qualified to comment on. We've all been through school, we all have a feeling for what worked and what didn't work for us, and for people who have children, they are deeply invested in the hopes that the education system works to give their kids the best possible start to life. But most of us aren't actually experts, and the New Zealand education system comprises a vast array of individual schools, learning spaces, teachers and student cultures around the suburbs, towns and cities of New Zealand. To delve a bit deeper into the way our education system works, what's changed and why, today I'm talking with Dr Bronwyn Wood, Senior Lecturer in the School of Education at Victoria University of Wellington, and Maxim Researcher Dr Rowan Light. So Bronwyn and Rowan, hello, welcome, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Uh, Bronwyn, starting off with you, unlike most of us, you actually are an expert in education. This is what you've spent so much time um, studying, practicing. What was it that led to you investing so much of your life in this particular field? I think like many, I view the hope of education as a game changer for people in society as one of the greatest motivations to be involved in it. Um, I also find it has some of the most compelling problems and issues of any area I've worked in. And I've sometimes considered shifting over to sociology, which I love. But um, the educational issues are really what drive me. So I remain as a sociologist of education within education rather than jumping outside. What are, what are your particular, um, I mean, you've done a master's, you've done a PhD, you've, you've also done uh, secondary teacher training as well. Um, what, what are the sort of areas that have most piqued your interest over the last few years? Um, the area I've developed the most um, of my research in is in the area of youth participation and citizenship education. So my PhD was primarily about how young people take social action um, through their schooling years and what issues are really motivating them to try and work on changing society. Um, and then that's kind of grown into a really big field of um, both active citizenship and youth and also citizenship education um, and then beyond that it's pushed straight through into education policy. So I teach courses on all of those areas now and also train social studies um, teachers. In terms of the things, I mean because obviously uh, youth engagement in education and you know I guess truancy but also um, you know even when kids turn up to school, uh, what actually keeps them engaged and motivated to learn uh, is, I guess that's the sociological aspect of what you're talking about, isn't it? Um, because so much of that motivation plays into performance and how whether, whether children actually want to learn. Are there particular things that you've gleaned um, for people who are sort of not deep into the issues themselves, but what are, if parents are listening to this, what are the sorts of uh, things that you've noted that really make a difference to that sort of motivation? Yeah, well, if I was an educational psychologist, I'd answer this in a really different way. And they talk a lot about motivation and grit and all sorts of things that keep um, individuals um, connected to their learning process. Um, but from a sociological perspective, I look at the child as a uh, part of a feature of family, whānau, communities and wider society and in the same way schooling and the schooling institutions are a microcosm of, um, they reflect in many ways the wider institutional um, factors around us. So if we have that really big look at schooling and we look at for example how schooling actually increases social reproduction and how many people from working class backgrounds end up in working class jobs 
and how schooling contributes to that, we have some very interesting stuff that's at, that's at the level of society rather than the individual to, to look at. So that's why we get straight into policy and community engagement and those much broader fields of education. One of the things that's really interesting when thinking about uh, community engagement with school is when talking to friends of mine who have children who've started going to school, a lot of the time recently the reflections that they have is actually how different schools are now to when they were at school in the 80s and 90s, um, both primary and high school, that uh, all of a sudden there's, you know, they're just surprised that it looks almost nothing like it. Uh, a lot of what's being talked about, um, a lot of the, the way things are taught are different. Um, and, and that leads to some concern in, in a lot of these conversations that I have with my friends who have children. Um, I've got a child who's probably about three or four years away from getting into school. Uh, and I'm kind of looking at it going, whoa, man, there's a lot going on. And so, Bronwyn, I guess my question would be, how much of that surprise and concern is, is justified? And how much of it is just the way things are now? I guess my question is, Bronwyn, how much of that concern or surprise is justified? And how much should we be concerned about these changes and how much of it is actually, well, this is good, it's reflecting the evidence of how children best learn? Yeah, well, I'll um, just answer that in two different ways because the first thing, it's important to understand what some of these changes actually are. So very broadly, we've had a number of, probably about three really big thrusts that have hit the New Zealand schools in the past about 20 years. Um, And the first of them is associated with a movement of globalisation and measurement and international comparison. And so what happened about in the 90s was education started to become part of what we call an international education policy field where countries compare themselves a lot more, look around the world for best policies. And through that we had the emergence of um, the OECD and other think tanks starting to influence policy largely on um, individualistic and quite neoliberal ideas of education um, for the economy. And so those changes hit um, New Zealand quite a lot around the 90s and we had a whole lot more measurement coming in. So we had a lot of testing and we then had um, ranking and comparisons between schools through the um, New Zealand's competitive um, tomorrow's school system so that all the schools could be ranked and so on. So on the back of that, as we hit the millennium, there was a lot of dissatisfaction about that approach to learning. And so many of the more what we call progressive ideas about education started to rise, partly in response and reaction to that, um, and also to the national standards which um, the national government brought in from about 2010 to about 2017. And so we had these quite conflicting movements, more measurement on one hand and more progressive education on the other. The, what the progressive education looks like is it's child-centred, we build the education around the learner themselves and these are widely differing um, personalised learning programmes for each child. Um, we then uh, place the child at the centre and ask them to make a lot more choices in their education and to choose topics they want to study and research and that we call um, inquiry learning or project-based learning. And all of these are caught up in a number of big international shifts um, that were also associated about the same time with the turn of the millennium. So we had the emergence of the 21st century learner um, early on in the 2000s which was strongly associated with very rapid technological and digital growth in the world. 
So these things all get put onto schools. And so we start having um, quite competing different things going on, but at the same time, um, bringing about what looks like quite cataclysmic change. Um, and schools have been always asked to respond to these changes. And in this case, I believe they responded far too quickly to this kind of mix of ideas and possibly threw out the baby with the bathwater as they did. And so we had some really big swings, both from a very prescribed and um, measured evaluative kind of curriculum through to then a very unmeasured, open, completely unprescribed type of curriculum that New Zealand then brought in in about 2007. So we've been living with that curriculum for, um, you know, ever since then, no new curriculum has been announced yet, although I, in my opinion we need one. Um, and so for a parent entering school, you'll see a mix of all those things happening. Um, and particularly the dominant discourse in the past three or four years has been this um, child-centred learning and a very open, localised curriculum. Yeah, Bronwyn, it is really interesting hearing there about the kind of broader patterns and the swings in education policy. And I think it is really valuable to kind of reflect um, on that broader uh, 20 and, and going on 30 years now, uh, particularly, as you said earlier, what, what has interested you has interested you in this area is precisely these really complex, knotty policy problems, which um, are created over time and, and aren't going to be solved overnight. Um, you, the I suppose this um, in the last couple of months and, and this week we've been talking, uh, there's been a bit of highlighting of the proposed changes around the New Zealand history curriculum. Um, to what ex how do you kind of place um, something as specific as, as a kind of a subject area, a curriculum change within this broader pattern? Um, what, are your, what are your reflections? Yeah, well, it, it really is a massive change. And what this new New Zealand Histories curriculum is saying is that there is knowledge which students have to know. It's prescribed and it's actually listed to be happening at certain years of schooling. And this completely defies what the New Zealand curriculum has kind of uh, uh, given us for the last um, 15 or more years which is very open you don't have to do anything if you don't want to you're guided by concepts and big ideas rather than anything prescribed so one of the um, reasons the New Zealand Histories curriculum has emerged is that what we found is that type of high autonomy curriculum um, what it's led to is a huge disparity in learning for um, different students across the country. So if you have a teacher who's passionately mad on this or that, you'll get a lot of that, but you'll completely miss some of the other things. So in university, we've been very concerned at the gaps in knowledge that are now emerging that have been promoted both by the curriculum and then also NCEA, which is also a very high, highly flexible, high choice, high autonomy model where you can pick and choose amongst um, a bunch of achievement standards. You pick the ones you want. So what we can see now that's very compelling and has resulted in a decline across our 15 year olds um, is a very rapid decline in, in maths and literacy and science knowledge. Um, part because that high autonomy is is supporting the highest SL schools find. We have um, teachers that just run with that and they're highly resourced communities that then support and build up some of the gaps in knowledge that might have been there. But in our poorer communities, this high autonomy model that relies on 
very high teacher professionalism and support from the wider community, um, what we call cultural capital. Um, if it's not there, the gaps then emerge even more, I think, than if we had a prescribed curriculum because people get sometimes an eclectic exposure to knowledge. So back to the New Zealand Histories curriculum, it really is quite radical because it's saying this is the knowledge which matters, this will be taught, and teachers will be expected to teach this and not go off on all sorts of different tangents according to their interests. It does have flexibility within it, so teachers you know, can choose different case studies and different ways to explore this within their local community, but basically there's a strong, firm um, expectation through it. Reflecting on the way that this has happened in terms of the sort of, I guess, the, the government, um, whether or not it's the Ministry of Education itself that's that's expressing this, is this a model of change that you think uh, is, is, is welcome, like in terms of the, the way that a government actually recognises a need and says, hang on a minute, this is the way that things should be done now, um, or is this... Is it overly prescribed? Um, how how should change best happen in education? I mean, how, how should these things be done? Well, in many ways, policy is driven by the loudest voices and what is politically palatable for governments. So in the case of New Zealand histories, um, there was a number of turning points as we emerged to what was then um, announced as a new curriculum. Um, and that was the advocacy of young people who... Um, Leah Bell and others from Otrahanga College um, stood up and said, we emerged at the end of our schools without knowing anything about New Zealand history. How can this be? So they presented a petition to Parliament. The New Zealand History Teachers Association also um, got behind this and said, this is a really big issue. We have kids that just have absolutely no knowledge. And I think it became such a compelling and widespread support for the idea that the, for the ministry it was a no-brainer to say, yes, this is a good idea, let's do it, because it was such a high win-win. Um, what the reality is, is very different, that even if we have this curriculum, it can still be taught poorly, um, it can still be poorly resourced, and students could still emerge at the end of their schooling without a good experience of New Zealand history. But at least if it's in the curriculum and some resourcing is put in place, there's a higher chance of young people learning that. You've alluded to the fact that this is uh, this is quite a step change in terms of the New Zealand curriculum. Um, and, and behind that, I guess I get the sense that the New Zealand curriculum is quite a hands-off uh, sort of, hey, these are the sorts of skills that you should have. But in terms of a basket of knowledge that we're offering our students across the country, uh, do you think that this sort of uh, this moment with the history curriculum could give a model for possibly inserting a bit more of that uh, expected knowledge that should be shared across every New Zealander as they come out of the education system? Um, yeah, so from my curriculum work with the ministry, um, they have basically got to a decision where I, th I think they need, they recognise the need to firm up the New Zealand curriculum and reduce some of that high autonomy. Um, but at this stage, there's been no firm indication that there will be a complete overhaul of the New Zealand curriculum. But um, I'd predict that probably will come in the next couple of years. I think it has to to line up with both what we're seeing happening and then also with the new history curriculum as a kind of much more firming up of the knowledge expected. Um, and our international um, countries around us, Australia, and the UK and others have swung from this more high autonomy to a much more structured model. Possibly, particularly the UK has swung too far, but down to every single level 
um, strongly prescribed and I think New Zealand teachers would really, really um, revolt at that thought now after this um, high autonomy. But yeah, so there's on the continuum, those two countries have swung a lot more back towards prescribed knowledge. Yeah, I guess it's interesting, isn't it, to think about these swings that we, we see and how do we, Bron, what are your reflections on how do we, as people involved in policy, but also as maybe members of the public interested in this this quite obvious public good, which we identify with, with education, is this just the inevitability of our kind of politics, uh, these kind of swings in, in education policy? Or is there, what are some of the ways do you think that we could um, kind of slow down, I suppose, and actually try to meet in the middle more often? I would be really keen to see the big swings reduced and the policy slowed down. We've had a, a hectic regime of policy and education, just ongoing change. Um, and I feel the schools have been impacted quite poorly by that. The teachers are quite exhausted by such a pace of change. And this tendency to overswing and overstate the mark um, has happened too many times. And we don't want a, a extremely rigid and prescribed curriculum. Um, we need the flexibility to work with different communities in New Zealand. Um, but we do need a little bit more firmness in the type of knowledge. So we just need a recentering of a lot of those swings of complete autonomy and complete prescription. We need um, a bit of a third way in the middle there. In your paper around uh, looking at the assumptions and the problems that sat behind the moves towards modern learning environments, uh, that you had a sentence that I thought was quite telling. Uh, you concluded, rather than a school's vision, curriculum and pedagogy driving the design of the space, the design of the space within constrained budget are driving curriculum and pedagogy. Um, that <laughs> that like sort of was a massive uh, big red flashing light to me uh, and and it kind of reflects the way that I think a lot of parents I know feel about um, the, the sudden shift to completely redesigned classroom experience uh, and, and when, when they ask questions they're sort of just told this is just best practice this is what we do now this is you know uh, having multiple teachers in a room of much uh, larger numbers of children than perhaps we were used to when we were at school uh, this is the best yeah I guess could you just talk a little bit about what your research showed and what, what you found when you looked into that well these modern learning environments have become um, very popular around New Zealand and just to recognize where a lot of that came from so we we had for about, under the tomorrow's school system in New Zealand, schools hold a lot of autonomy about controlling their own school environment. And if you had a bag of money and you were the board of trustees and you could put that money into um, exciting things, you very rarely would do the maintenance in the back block of the classroom that was looking terrible but no one in the public really saw because what you'd do is that front-facing stuff to attract the public to you because this is the competitive model you want to get the best families in the door with the best kids so for about 30 years New Zealand's building products in New Zealand schools um, were very the building stock was very poor quality and so it was actually the national government that came in and recognised this. We had leaky buildings because schools had just decided on cheap forms of redesign because they were in charge of it, there was no oversight and so that was compelled by poor management and society about building products at the same time in the, in the 90s. So schools kind of wore all of this and so we have very poor building stock. So 
And top of that, there's a second kind of discourse which began to happen about um, digital learners, 21st century learners, and how these were supposedly just so vastly different that our schools needed to be different to respond to those needs. Um, I think this discourse is overstated, but nonetheless became very much part of these modern learning environments. So what happened was a massive rebuild on the back of actually the Christchurch earthquakes too, which demanded a rebuild of schools at the same time. Um, that resulted in these barn-sized classrooms, um, sometimes up to 120 kids in one big environment, but with some breakout areas off them. Um, and teachers collapsed into a collaborative model of sharing the teaching for those 120 kids rather than your own group of 30. The data is not good from those schools at all that's emerging, and I have heard a Ministry of Education official say they will never do that again. Um, it wasn't great. And so they've tried in more recent years to be slightly more responsive to school communities, but nonetheless it is cheaper to build these larger rooms instead of individual rooms uh, as classrooms traditionally have been. Basically more walls are more expensive. Um, so this has, um, the, the paper I wrote with Louise Starkey identified that the budget constraints were pushing a lot of these modern learning environments plus this kind of ideology of the 21st century learner and the supposed rapid change that these young people are going through. What is really sobering to me as an education res researcher is that there, there still is no compelling evidence that suggests these environments create higher student achievement. So whilst they're actually building higher specs of, say, audio and lighting and heating, these things are good. We need them in our classrooms too, and the buildings certainly needed them because they were such poor stock. Um, but at the same time, in terms of achievement, the jury's still out across the entire world that these classrooms build better achievement, partly because it's so hard to research. If you have a massive study like Melbourne did um, under John Hattie over there, they took all these environments and said, so are the students achieving better? What they couldn't do was isolate that it was the walls or the absence of walls that made the difference as opposed to a particularly good teacher in that classroom. So do you understand why it becomes particularly difficult research to get that one final concluding bit of research that says it was the walls of the classroom and the ab or the absence of them that made the difference as opposed to a really good teacher, which we all know is actually what makes the difference in the classroom. So it is quite hard to um, untangle all of that, but basically we've been forced in New Zealand to put a lot of attention into buildings um, and this is the solution that has been um, arrived at with very little educational evidence. Yeah, one, one thing that really stood out to me reading the paper was you reflecting on the on the way that language through the official reports changed. And, and it, it seemed to me that early on, I think you were saying, please correct me if I'm wrong, early on the language was around, um, you know, the evidence supports um teachers uh, collaborating uh, and then that shifted in later reports to the evidence supports a collaborative teaching model which um, can sound very similar but maybe could you just tease out the difference between those things and, and whether or not there's actually that research evidence base behind that. So um, teachers have always collaborated particularly in primary school partly because they're not subject specialists so they have, they're generalists they have to teach across all these subject areas and they're amazing people. Um, so they've always collaborated and built on each other's strengths. But what, um, around about 2015 or so, the discourse changes and started to indicate that collaboration needed to happen all in the same 
room in the same environment um, rather than the type of collaboration which always has been happening. So it was quite an intriguing shift and started to promote quite a different way of teaching and quite a different um, point of connection. So um, different teaching styles developed in which uh, teachers did this um, kind of like much more shared teaching in the classroom. And some schools we know have done this reasonably well. It's not that it's all a disaster. We have some schools that manage this quite well. And so what, what does that look like when it's done really well? Like what are the, what are, I guess, the features and the benefits of a model like that? What it allows is, in the words of a deputy principal I know, is it allowed them basically to train up the slightly weaker teachers by placing them with a stronger teacher in the same room. So it could be viewed as a form of surveillance or a form of professional development, but if you have three teachers in the room, one of them slightly weaker, they're kind of brought on board by these other teachers. And so there's some level of accountability there, which I think has some merits, but we also could do that um, within traditional classrooms if we put in place some good levels of um, mentoring and support in the school. When that's done well, you have a really good team working extremely well together um, and delivering a really strong programme. When it's not done well, um, we have kids who are kind of disappearing in those large environments. We have about one in 10 learners have some kind of learning need and it's completely proven that those big environments are not helping those learners much at all. In fact, it's um, disadvantaging them significantly because of the noise and the level of high intensive collaboration going on all day. And yeah, so there's quite other specific learning issues emerging if there isn't good tracking and tracing of what kids are actually doing. So there's an awful lot of time to just sit around brainstorming basically, but not that high and kind of like one-on-one intensity that a teacher can do in a smaller area as well. So a big part of this, reflecting on your research, Bronwyn, uh, these is obviously this kind of something which often underpins ultimately policy kind of trajectories, which is obviously um, follow the money, right? And and this, the issues of constrained budgets. And it's interesting listening and thinking about your research as a good example of how incentives are very powerful things, don't they? They create pathways um, which like sort of steer us in certain directions and, and like any like steering a big ship can be quite difficult to turn off once once we go down that direction um i mean so that's it kind of reflects i suppose this broader kind of theme that that you were reflecting on earlier about the kind of broader education landscape which is this kind of trend of corporatization almost um of schools uh, almost to, to be treated as as businesses um and so it's interesting to think about modern learning environments as kind of open plan offices almost like there's a similar kind of ideological milieu maybe that we're kind of swimming through but what are your reflections on how we might respond to that how do we return our education space to something which is a bit more focused on less on on economic incentives and um and getting the the sort of maximizing our outputs for for the for the less dollars um and how might we kind of start to put back more this idea that public is a, sorry that education is a bit of a public good and, and a common good you will have heard me say a number of times that about talking about autonomy and how this idea of choice has been fed into New Zealand schools in so many different ways so it affects our curriculum it affects um, the personalized learning programs of the kids it affects how schools want to do things their way and create their own structures and I think this is quite a deep shift in our understanding of the purpose of education and it's quite a weak and thin notion of freedom and there's a 
researcher I, I read a lot of called Gert Biester that talks about how these um, ideas of autonomy, individualization, personalization, and learning set up a child who can become very entitled in the world because everything is directed about them and their vision and they very rarely do something for the collective. And these ideas run deeply, deeply through our education now um, and indeed are quite worrying about the extreme of what they mean for a democracy. Um, because really at any stage do we learn something because it's good for us or we learn something because we might discover things about other people that we don't know about before. Um, the sense of entitlement that's kind of driving is quite a strong one. So to change it is really hard because one of the things I try and do is to even get the teachers to critique what's happening because teachers are so busy, they tend to be quite pragmatic. I have to do this, I have to do this, I have to live like this. Um, and when I've had occasion to ask them to stop and think about, do you have to use Google Docs for this? Could you do this in a more interactive and relational way that would actually build relationships instead of putting a screen between you and the child and the feedback you're giving all the time? Um, it often takes me quite a bit of time to get them to understand the critique of how this big business approach has crept into our classrooms through Google and Microsoft and Apple, and they're loving their position in our classrooms, particularly post-COVID, um, because they are managing to change the very nature of not just how we teach and learn, but how we interact as humans. And so I do have quite grave concerns um, that we are losing something that's deeply responsive to human relationships, um, which I believe is the essence of teaching. So I'm a very big opponent to online learning, which um, we had to do for sure in COVID, and I support that. But as a choice, I think that human reaction, that relationship that we can have and interaction together is the very essence of what it means um, to find freedom and to find what is a much bigger idea of um, collective good in society. Yeah, and something you touch on in your, in your research, uh, which is, is, was the importance or perhaps a more fruitful kind of policy problem would actually be looking at teacher-student ratios rather than the aesthetics of a classroom. Um, what are your thoughts? Yeah, could you unpack that a little bit for, for us? Some of the teacher-student ratios that are being used for these modern learning environments particularly um, aren't even what we know to be best practice, particularly in terms of audio and particularly kids who have some form of hear hearing um, disability. So one of our concerns was that um, the ratios which are enabled by opening up the walls even more are quite damaging for some groups of um, students and those who are particularly hearing impaired. Um, and in terms of the bigger issue of how many teachers um, are teaching students in terms of ratios and stuff like that, we've largely held about one teacher to 27 students for many, many years in New Zealand. And Hattie's research suggests that the ratio of students to teachers isn't the most compelling shift that could be made in education, but the quality of the teacher is. So where I think we need to put our attention is on resourcing, supporting, enriching and deepening teacher knowledge um, so that they can do the job really, really well instead of um, constantly feeling stretched as they are now. Yeah, and it, it is interesting to coming back to the history curriculum which there's been this kind of interesting, I think a 
as you've touched on this broader sense that there is this shift that we need to make around putting more knowledge into the shared knowledge into the curriculum but there's also the there's this quite i think quite exciting aspect of it which is the the kind of broader the desire for consultation and input from um from communities and and kind of much more to to grow collaboration between schools and communities particularly with an emphasis on hapu and iwi um, but also thinking bright about broader sort of civic society. There's no doubt at all that we've had a largely monocultural approach to our education system. And mm. I know from my research talking to young people, there are some that feel deeply out of place in the schools they're in because of their cultural background and the values they hold. So we do need to work harder on greater inclusion for the wonderful, vibrant, diverse society that New Zealand is. And to recognise our commitment to our bicultural legacy, we need a much deeper um, commitment to Mataranga Māori and other aspects of um, iwi and hapu kano knowledges in our curriculum. Those are really challenging issues for teachers and we currently aren't ready to do that. Um, I think it will be a bit of a long project, that one. I wonder if you have any reflections. Um, I, I had friends um, who, you know, back in 2011 and 12 now were going through uh, they, they were going through teachers' college, and one phrase that kept coming up when I was talking to them was that they really emphasised their own identity as a teacher, well, not as a teacher, but as a co-learner with a child, um, and that really drove back against what I had experienced at school and really felt like one of those big changes that was like, oh, hang on a minute, co-learner, what does that mean? My wife is now, she has been all, for a very long time, an early childhood uh, teacher, and she loves this model of sort of discovery with a child and entering into a child's world. Could you just comment on that that identity of a teacher as a co-learner versus what I guess traditionally there was a sense of this sort of uh, person who held knowledge and invited learners into the knowledge that the, the teacher could impart and the benefits and drawbacks of each of those kind of understandings of what a teacher's job might be? The Māori concept of ako has been used very widely in New Zealand education to describe this process of both um, the teacher learning from the learner and the learner learning from the teacher as a reciprocal process. What I think that slightly ignores is the fact that the teacher does know more stuff about certain things and that's why the child is at school. So what I think the emphasis I place on that idea is that learning changes and teaching changes according to who's in the room and it's that interaction of each other that generates something really quite special for um, both the teacher and the learner when that um, learning is relational and interactive. So I'll give you an example. When I enter a lecture, sometimes I have 160 students, I can't do this, but in a smaller lecture theatre, even up to 60, I'll start talking about you know a concept, maybe I'm talking to my education policy class about neoliberalism and then I'll say to the students so what is your experience as young students of what you have to pay for for your education what's this been like um, let's look at that as an example of neoliberalism and so we generate all of the ideas that they've experienced back into this um, concept we're examining and it deeply enriches the learning because then their lives get seen deeply in the type of learning and the concept is far more deeply understood. Something like neoliberalism isn't easy to understand first off. You often have at least five bits of the carrot before you understand something like neoliberalism. Um, so what that means for me is that my lecture changes and I realise actually about a third of the course aren't really with me. I'm going to have to slow down 
what I thought I was going to do today and interact in a way to get everyone on the same page and infuse the learning. So at that place, we, we have a deep um, interaction going on in the classroom and a good teacher will always do this. And so therefore, I'm learning from them to enrich the ideas that I know that together we get to a different place. That's how I understand it. And it's not that I don't have more knowledge about neoliberalism than them, but it's that their collective life experiences can enrich and deepen the concept of it. So I think there's just occasionally misunderstandings that the teacher knows no more than the child, which I think is is not right and doesn't make any sense whatsoever. The different way I see it is that actually the child in the room shapes even how I teach um, and that interaction is the most magical part of teaching to me and that's why I don't like online learning as much. The best education experiences I can think of are ones where the, the teacher I was with definitely had a sense of where... I needed to get to in terms of my understanding, my knowledge, my processing of it. But the teacher wasn't just going to tell me it. The The best education experiences is where I discovered that understanding I needed to have through, I mean, it was very Socratic, te- you know, the Socratic teaching method of asking questions and drawing me further into knowledge and, and asking me to participate in it rather than just sort of telling me rote uh, what what I needed to know. So it's it's really interesting actually because often you can sort of uh, you know when we think about this idea of you know is it a, is it co-learning or is it a teacher teaching uh, you can get this idea that it's either or and actually both of those extremes can be very unsatisfying and and produce quite terrible results but I guess what you're saying Bronwyn is in the middle there's this beautiful moment where the teacher and the student relationally get to uh, a deeper understanding that the teacher is guiding the student into because I think you're right because the kind of flip side I suppose of a of what we're talking about of an attitude of of the teacher is just a co-learner who whose knowledge is on par with the experience of the child is a situation where we we produce ch- our students our children who as 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 entitled but also as consumers as as essentially we're giving them what they want rather than necessarily what they don't know and what they might need and it's also a kind of i, I think the danger of this this kind of model if over as as Bronwyn was saying is if it's if it's misunderstood or sort of taken to an extreme is probably um I think it's quite condescending and, and quite and almost insulting to our children because it does deprive them of the sense that actually when you're doing mathematics and doing science and doing history and being taught by somebody with a rich body of knowledge which has developed in over many decades of teaching that, that that's something very precious that knowledge that they are sharing with you is very precious um, and you almost should value it as as precious and as a kind of inheritance I think that's quite a, a subtle kind of um, but really important kind of part of that relational aspect of what Bronwyn is emphasizing there um, and also I think again going back to some, Bronwyn you you mentioned your interest ultimately in education and citizenship um, because if we only, if we only approach learning and teaching as as kind of affirming um, the experience of our of our students, then it's going to be very hard for them to be critical and about the forces that that shape them and and their society and their far now and their communities, such as neoliberalism. If we want to take you know you mentioned that as a as a gateway for for you know challenging your students at tertiary level to think about the. The, the ideas that shape their world um, 
end but we want our students and our, our young people to be yeah to be engaged in a kind of critical citizenship i think which is really fundamental to yeah the health of our democracy obviously it's sort of embedded in in a lot of what we've been discussing is this idea of the extremes of education that we sort of have this you know and, and you've sort of reflected Bronwyn about this pendulum swing these sort of large scale changes that we've we've undergone um, whether it be different governments that have brought in different ideologies of education uh, or, or otherwise and it seems that there is this um, almost a real uh, a tension between a progressive um, influence or model of education and a conservative of like, hey, we want it to all look the same way that we we learned when we were kids. Um, how do you reflect on those two different kind of voices and forces in education and, and how might you suggest that those, those be mediated? Yeah, I reflect on this quite a lot because I can see those culture wars playing out in education particularly, but also across uh, society in many ways as well. Um, and I think what we need to do is find ways to navigate beyond those binary and dichotomizing kind of positions of being progressive and child-centered and all focusing on the child and being conservative and focusing on the ways which things have always been done. And one of the challenges I find um, for policy, for curriculum making and for teaching is to find ways to break down those um, extremes and find ways that recognize the strengths that both have um, and yet not position ourselves into these um, dichotomous kind of extremes because in general they don't serve the child well nor our society well. Um, so it actually takes quite a lot more thinking because it's easy to jump into different camps in response but to find a way in the middle is a far more nuanced and careful position to take. But it's ultimately going to be one that lasts, isn't it? Because if one side has a win, a big win, because they've got the government of the day, you know, with them and their ideology and they manage to get all the change they want, well, no government lasts forever. So, you know, if if, if there's a big win, then there's there's likely to be a big loss of that same thing, um, which, which leads, I guess, to these big pendulum swings. Just to finish off, Bronwyn, I wondered if you could um, maybe just reflect on what encouragement you'd offer to any teachers or parents who are listening um, who might be experiencing I guess these changes um, and and if you have um, I guess teachers who come to you I'm, I'm assuming you probably have a lot of conversations uh, like this how do you encourage them and what do you sort of ask them to hold on to as uh, I guess the good that will remain um, that will remain steady throughout um, any kind of uh, type of teaching or ideology of education um, yeah, I do have many conversations with teachers and with parents and one of the things I really encourage both is to continue to critique these new ideas that flow through. Um, I say to my stage three education policy class, if there's anything that I want to achieve more um, by the rest of the course than anything else is that I want you to critique every single thing that comes out so that you have the ability to critically think through um, where these kind of policies will take us, who's um, most poorly affected by these, and particularly if we look at a lens of inequality and social justice, um, and what do we need to stick to so that the most people in society can get um, the maximum benefit out of this. Um, for teachers, I really encourage them to continue to critically evaluate the policies which they are given because they can subvert them quite a lot in the classroom. That's one of the joys of being a teacher, that you can do things a bit your own way. What we often find is that if you stick to your knitting, what you know to be really good teaching, um, it'll all swing around and come back to what you know to be good. So 
just keep doing what you know and don't be too pulled by um, huge big trends one way or the other because they don't generally don't serve us particularly well. There is no silver bullet in education. It is a far more complex um, question that we have to answer and it is multiple things that are required including societal level change as well as classroom change. And one more just for free. I know I said final question. But just uh, as we leave, if you could just wave a magic wand and fix any one particular area of education policy right now, what would you do? I would instigate a new curriculum. I think ours is past its you by date. Um, I also would drastically um, change NCEA. <laughs> I think it, it really isn't working for us well. Um, right. So it needs a lot of work possibly a future podcast in that one <laughs> thank you so much for your time um, with us Bronwyn I really really appreciate your expertise thanks for listening to the Maxim Institute podcast you can search and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts from the team at Maxim Institute Matewa. Mate